It's good to be with you, Vintage. We are beginning our Advent series. And for those of you who are familiar with this time of year, it's a wonderful time of expectation. It's a time in the next several weeks where, where we really remind ourselves that this is a time of waiting. We remember the waiting that Israel did as they waited for the Messiah to come, and we celebrate that He came in the birth of Christ. We also know for ourselves in this generation, in this era, we are too awaiting His return and all the wonderful stuff that comes with that. And and so in the beginning of our Advent series, what we want to do is go back to the Old Testament and really look at the experience they had in waiting for the Messiah and what life looked like for them. And so what we're going to do is look at the book of Isaiah, and we're going to try to cover quite a bit of territory in a short amount of time. Um, but really, we're going to focus on Isaiah chapter 9. But in order to make that chapter makes sense. I want to give a quick overview of the previous eight chapters. I'm going to try to do that in about two minutes, maybe five. Um, but the reality is it was a very dark time. And so what had happened up until this point is Israel had been one nation, but it had actually over time split in two. There had been rampant corruption happening in Israel. They had moved into the promised land, and rather than transforming the promised land to look like God had desired to fulfill the Ten Commandments and be this new community that reflected God's greatness, they moved into the land and they started to adopt the ways and the practices of the Canaanites who lived there. And those ways and practices were pretty messy. Um, the Canaanites had worshipped dozens of different gods, which led them to be very superstitious. So they would um, need to worship the god of fertility, and there was a lot of mess around that, and the god of rain and grain and all kinds of things. And so they were constantly in this state of trying to appease the gods. With that, there was a lot of astrology. There was a lot of consulting the dead. And ultimately, they really became corrupted in that they started um, engaging in child sacrifice um, in order to appease the gods. And at this point, some of Israel's own kings began to do that. So over time, through some just internal conflict, this nation has split in half. And there's the north, which is Israel. Their capital is Samaria. And there's the south, which is Judah. And their capital is Jerusalem. And God has appointed prophets to speak to both of these nations, trying to get them back on track and get them back in alignment with each other. And Isaiah is the prophet to the southern portion of what would have been Israel, which is Judah. And he is now trying to turn them around. Um, he's just finished working with a king who did a pretty de decent job. And now he's working with that guy's son and this kid is not <laughs> making good choices. And in his own corruption, he's leading all of Judah in the wrong direction. And really what you see in these eight chapters is God consistently calling out injustice. He's calling out the fact that they exploit the poor, that they run people over, they're confiscating people's land, and the leaders are drunk, and they are out of control, and they are beyond greedy and selfish. And the Lord has had it with it because He's watching the destruction of their behavior. Um, and I just encourage you, if you do read the Old Testament um, or you do read these chapters, really look at the lens through which God views justice. He's, he's concerned about power-hungry people. He's concerned about the poor and, and their exploitation. Um, he demands that we treat one another with respect, that we're honest, that we have integrity, that we approach, especially leadership roles, with a sense of shepherding and obligation. And consistently, 
throughout all time, um, human beings, we all struggle with that. Give, give us a little bit of power and we can go uh, crazy with that. And you're seeing that in this case. And it's not, it's not pretty. Um, it's very devastating and people's well-being is really being degraded and diminished and God has started to have it. So at this point, he sends Isaiah to Ahaz and he says, Ahaz, you've got to turn back to me and trust me. And what Ahaz says is actually, um, what I'm going to do is turn to another country and I'm going to ask that country or that nation, Assyria, to begin to take care of us and to provide for us and shelter us. God, I'm not interested in your ways. I don't want to do it the way that you're asking me to do it. And I don't really trust you. And the warning has come that if you turn to Assyria, they are very violent. They are very corrupt. They're a mess. And if you turn to them, they're going to turn on you and they're going to destroy you. And this is the moment, um, if you've ever loved someone who is on a path to self-destruction, if you've ever cared about someone who is in maybe heading into a relationship where you can see the entity they are going to align themselves with, the mob, a gang, an abusive relationship, you're watching this happen and you're just internally dying and you're just pleading with them, please do not do this. This thing that you're turning toward, even substance abuse and use, is going to destroy you. And you see Isaiah um, expressing God's plea to Ahaz, please don't do this. And what's so noteworthy at this moment where God is calling Ahaz back to himself, calling the, the you know nation of Judah back to himself, is Ahaz has been so corrupt at this point. Um, Ahaz himself has sacrificed one of his children to one of the false gods. There is not anything that guy hasn't done wrong. And you see, even in that moment of such deep depravity and corruption, the Lord still reaches out to him and says, come back, do it my way. Join me in my righteousness and my goodness. And Ahaz isn't interested. And what we see in this moment is this incredible darkness land on, this na on both these nations. The North Israel has its own story and its own problems. And in every direction, this has become a complete mess. And for the average person living in the Israel territory at this point, the promised land, which should have been so wonderful and so great, there's such a deep um, fear of what's coming. And anyone who has insight, anybody who's paying attention knows this place is headed on a terrible trajectory. And it's terrifying, and it's, it's absolutely unnerving. And what we see at this moment, as in the story that Isaiah is telling us, is as he's warning them, and he's pointing out their flaws, and he's letting them know where they're blowing it, and they're messing up, he then reminds them of Isaiah chapter 9. And what we see in Isaiah chapter 9 is this incredible hope in the midst of all of this darkness. This is the hope of Christ that we have now. And what it says, beginning um, in verse 1, it says, Nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. Now, those were some of the more corrupt regions. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan Sea, will be filled with glory. And if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Galilee of the Gentiles is where Jesus came and began to do his miracles and began started his Sermon on the Mount giving his new instruction. So we see what's coming is this region that has been corrupted, has not followed God, will still be called back to him. 
starting in verse 2, it says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. And so what we see in the midst of this nation that has become so corrupt and perverse, um, so unfaithful to God, he remains steadfast in saying, I have made a commitment to you. That's in Genesis 15. God has made a covenant that he will not break to his people. And what he's saying is, I will continue despite how awful all of this is. I will continue to maintain my commitment to you. And he reminds them of who he is. In this section where you see wonderful counselor, um, it's a good translation. It's an accurate translation in verse 6. But it's lost some of its meaning over time. Wonderful can sound like fantastic, fabulous, you know, you're wonderful. But the reality is it's more awe-inspiring that it's a wonder of a counselor. It's someone when you look at their counsel, it is so deep and it is so wise and it is so multifaceted and profoundly good. Um, such good advice, the best advice you've ever gotten, um, that it, it really just would put you back and thinking like, oh my word, who is this person that would know this much? That's the kind of counsel that God is giving us in his word. There's so much truth to it. The amount of health that it brings is profound. And that's where we see even this phrase that we use, that we know, and it's Prince of Peace. This is someone who carries in his being and in his authority, peace. And peace isn't just the absence of war. Um, it's not just tranquility. Peace is a sense of wholeness. It's a sense of someone's complete and perfect well-being. It's someone who knows how something runs or how someone ticks or what someone needs and knows exactly how to supply that for their full flourishing, for their full health and their full well-being. And what we see in scripture over and over again is if we allow it to instruct us, if we allow it to be our counsel, if we allow it to tell us how to live, it continually invites us into life. It continually invites us into health. When scripture tells me to be honest, what it's laying out in front of me is a path of trustworthiness. My relationships will be at peace. People will know that what I say is what I mean and they won't be confused. When scripture tells me to be fair, set aside your prejudice, set aside your, your desires, and just be honest and fair about a situation, 
Don't have a favorite. Don't collude with someone's um, story just to, to make sure they win the argument. Make sure you stay fair. When we, when we walk in fairness, when we walk in justice, what we see are people who are justified in their behavior are set free, they're validated, they might even be vindicated, and people who need to hold, take responsibility for maybe being corrupt, not treating people well, are held accountable. And when we hold those things in tension, when we walk in those ways, everything around us flourishes. People are at peace. They're not afraid. We've been in such an era in this last year of just trying to get accurate information. And you can see the tension. You can see the suspicions. You can see the corrosion of trust. And what scripture tells us from the beginning is tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And let's see where the chips lay. Let's see what happens. And when we do that, we feel so much more at peace. And so there's much more to it than just truth and justice. But those are some of the core things that the Lord has called us to. And when we look at what, what happens when I apply that, the reality is when I apply it, wonderful things happen. Doesn't mean that there aren't moments that it's tough. Doesn't mean that there aren't moments that you tell the truth and someone who doesn't tell the truth seems to get a short-term advantage. But at the end of the day, as we continue to apply God's word, we reap the benefits of life and peace that he offers. As I was thinking about this, this is kind of a silly example, but uh, all through, uh, starting in high school, high school, college, graduate school, and a little bit after, um, on and off, um, especially always at the holiday seasons, I was working at Nordstrom, or I'd spend my summers working at Nordstrom. It's partly how I helped pay, put my way through school. Um, and if you're familiar, retail has changed so much, but back in the day, um, if you're familiar with Nordstrom, they are a really, really wonderful company to work for. I loved working for them. Um, they had very high standards, and the expectation is we would go to a whole week of training before we were even allowed to go out on the sales floor. Once we learned our sales, we had to learn exceptional customer service, exceptional um, go, kind of go the extra mile, very polite, um, very gracious. We had an extremely generous return policy that was almost ridiculous, but it was part of the ethos. And so we would return anything with a big smile on our face. Um, and the reality is the people that worked there, especially the management level, were lovely people. Um, there was an expectation that you were going to show up with a good attitude and be a hard worker and that this job wasn't going to be a piece of cake, but by showing up this way, you would reap a lot of benefits. And you couldn't fudge on it. And if you showed up and you didn't want to behave that way, then you weren't going to fit into the culture and you weren't going to reap the benefits of it. And when I was thinking about some of this call, and again, forgive the analogy, it's not perfect, but um, this idea of wanting to be part of God's family and his kingdom and his reign here on earth means showing up in a way that reflects him asking him for his instruction and taking it seriously and really applying it and finding all the benefits that come with applying that instruction. And there are times where it will feel like a drawback. There are times where it's going to feel like in the short term I've lost something. But in the long term, there is so much rich goodness in his counsel. I was looking at um, one of the Advent um, devotionals by Paul Tripp. It says, it's called, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him. And he addresses some of the things that sabotage our connection with God and sabotage um, us really walking in the peace, the shalom, the wholeness, the fullness 
um, the goodness, the great counsel that he has for us. And it's just sometimes as simple as willingness. Sometimes we haven't really asked ourselves, what is it that you're calling me to, Lord, and am I willing to do it? And on um, his December 2nd entry, he says, one of the dark character qualities of sin is that we don't recognize as much as we should is unwillingness. We often are unwilling to do what God says if it doesn't make sense to us. We're often unwilling to inconvenience ourselves for the needs of someone else. We're unwilling to wait unwilling to be open and honest, unwilling to consider the loving rebuke of another. We struggle to be willing to say not our own or, or to say no to our own wrong thoughts and desires or to answer God's ministry call. Often we are unwilling to admit that we are wrong. We struggle to serve willingly and to give generously. Unwillingness is one of sin's powerful damaging results. So here's what the Christmas story is all about. A willing Savior is born to rescue unwilling people from themselves. What we have, our hope isn't that we are willing, but our blessing is in that when we're willing. My hope for salvation isn't that I will ever get it together. My hope for salvation is Christ. My hope for a world that really reflects Him is in His second coming. But in the meantime, in the now and the not yet, he's invited us to be a city on the hill. He's invited us not to turn to other nations, other gods, um, strategies that are corrupt, strategies that harm people, strategies that hurt our, even our own well-being. He invites us to stay steady, know his word, trust him, and continue to move forward in his call, even when it seems dark, even when it, we look around and we think things look like chaos, things look crazy, and this path of being honest and just and good seems really, really naive. And what we're called to is, to is to begin to really trust Him even when we can't see where He's going and ask Him to show up in a moment like this, in a moment in our country and in our world where we have a pandemic, where we have political unrest and we've had a lot of breakdown in relationships, and rather than turning to our instincts and any of the worldly strategies that might be available to go back to his word, to get back into community with each other and to reflect who he is in our generosity, in our love for people, in our willingness to be humble and our willingness to be honest, trust him with his word, apply his word and watch what he does. And for some of us, I know myself included, that means that even a time of self-reflection over the last eight months, where have I landed in my soul? Where have my behaviors landed? Where have my relationships landed? Do I need to confess anything? Do I need to own anything? And do I need to continue to um, reflect on things that maybe need to be submitted and handed over to the Lord? So as we remember who Christ is, we remember God is a wonderful counselor. He's the Prince of Peace. And everything that he asks us to let go of, the things he says, please don't participate in that, are all for our good and for our well-being. And I want to finish this off in Isaiah chapter 11. Just the promise. Israel is going to go into captivity. Assyria is going to do everything that Ahaz was warned about. They're going to turn on, on Judah, and they're going to pull them into captivity and in slavery, and they're going to ruin them for a very long time um, because Ahaz would not turn to the Lord. But we see even after all that destruction, God's promise stays true. 
And on Isaiah 11, it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. And that's just a metaphor to say this tree that's been cut down will survive. And there'll be a branch that will come out of it. It's going to come from the line of Jesse, who was David's father. And we know Jesus comes from the line of Jesse and David. Okay, so the shoot is going to come out and its roots um, and branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And then it goes on to talk about how the lion will lay down with the lamb. There will be no more fighting, violence, contention, dishonesty. It will all be laid to rest. And that's ultimately what we have to look forward to in the second coming. In this period of waiting for Christ, we know what's coming will be amazing. It will be full and it will be beautiful. And in the meantime, as believers, I just want to challenge myself, I want to challenge you that we begin now to invite that goodness today, that we be part of it, that we let the Holy Spirit speak in us and through us that we would be wise, that we would be loving, that we would be just. And when all this pressure is around us, that we would stay true and faithful because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us um, to God's plan and God's will. So we want to pray for each other. Um, We want to get on the phone, get on Zoom calls as we lock down again or FaceTime, pray with each other, keep each other in mind, Um, continue to find ways to fellowship together and continue to keep God's word and his goodness before us. He is the almighty Prince of Peace. He is the wonderful counselor. We want to invite him to speak into our lives, even in this tough time. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we just thank you that you're in each home right now. We thank you for your counsel and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would encourage hearts that are discouraged. We pray that you would speak light where it feels dark. We pray for hope where it feels like despair. We pray for courage when we want to cave in and we want to collapse. We pray that you would give us strength and you would give us resolve. And Holy Spirit, as a community here at Vintage, but across LA, across this world, this community of believers, would rise up in the power of the Holy Spirit to show your goodness and your love and your kindness and your righteousness. Will you fill us over to overflowing to be able to do that and help us to be generous in your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.